1: total soccer show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and today we are answering your USA and MLS centric listener questions. It's the episode of the week when Graham and Ryan don't know we record so we're allowed to talk about American things with glee. Joining me to answer six to seven questions. We'll see what we get through. Mr. Debson Downer himself. It's Joe Lowry. Uh, (laughs) Joe, that was my favorite beginning to an episode. You trying to figure out if you should be Debbie Downer or Debson Downer. Uh, And I agree with Goss. Just go with whichever one you want to be, man.
2: I, I, I think ultimately I, I've had a lot of time to reflect on it. I think Debson uh-huh. is my preference in this there particular case. But I think, you know, Goss helped steer me back on to the episode and, and less off track <laughs> early on. And so I did appreciate that from him. Also, Taylor, I was listening to the episode that you and Graham did yesterday, which uh-huh. was a U.S.-themed episode. And Graham is, you know, Ryan's the honorary food American in that he sort of likes all the food that we're ashamed of. Graham yep. is like the honorary soccer American because he, yep. he's put in a lot of work to watch the U.S., I was listening to you too, and was just reminded of how Scottish Graham is yesterday, and it was awesome. Graham, I love it. You did a great job on that show with Taylor. Good analysis. Good Scottish
1: accent. Brings a lot of authenticity to the show. Oh, boy. Authenticity. Was there anything? like We didn't talk about haggis or anything. Was it just the accent talking about the USMNT? I was just listening to it in the car, and I was like, man, this dude is Scottish, and Graham, we love you for it. All right. Well, we do love Graham. We do love you, Joe Debson-Lowry. Joining us is a man who isn't mad at Aiden Morris, a.k.a. Amo, uh, he's just disappointed. It's David Goss. Hi, David.
3: That's not how I coach, by the way. I'm, like, pure <laughs> confidence in the background, so I would yeah. be, like, coming out of that and being like, you're great. We believe in you. We trust you. You're good. Would
1: you, would you go compliment sandwich? Like, you're great. You're doing awesome. Stop making egregious mistakes and pass the ball, but also doing great. So good. Yeah, so probably. Good. Okay.
3: I would be a little bit more, like, backhanded and coy of, like, hey, listen, like, Just play simple. It doesn't really matter. Like you're good. That's what I do to everyone on my teams when they make mistakes and they're like, my bad. I'm like, no, you're good. You're doing great. Just pass it. Don't, don't look me off and then try and dribble through three guys.
1: I love that you think you're playing well. That makes yeah. me happy, <laughs> Aiden. That makes me happy. Uh, we are going to answer some questions. First, though, uh, I saw news today. Uh, Tim Wey has moved to Juve, all but confirmed. Ricardo Pepe's respective move to uh, PSV, all but confirmed. Joe, we need a lot of Americans to get some moves this summer. If these are the first two, I'm saying we're two for two so far in moves that I like. Uh, how are you feeling about these two? I am cautiously optimistic about
2: both. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm into the Ricardo Pepe one, right? So, yep. I'll, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent. I haven't looked at PSV striker depth chart, and, and they are a talented team in the Netherlands. And so, I, I don't hit. know Slack what hit, his I don't know what his path to playing time. This wasn't on the running order, people. This wasn't on the running <laughs> order. I don't know what his path to playing time is, but I would I would like to think that he's got a good chance after doing fairly well in the Eredivisie last season. And Tim Weah. Like, it sounds like he's going to play wing back for them, yep. which I personally am fine with. Like, we've seen him play fullback for a season at Lille, score no goals, do nothing in the final third, and still come into the U.S. men's national team and be, like, this lightning-quick, effective final third player. I think Tim Wey is a guy that it, it just doesn't matter what he's doing at his club. He works really well in how the U.S. play and in that setup. And the fact that he's he's going to be at Juve with the sick kit, which is the, the at least the jersey that I saw photoshopped, or maybe it's real, yep. in Fabrizio Romano's tweet. I think I like that move. Juve yeah. don't play good soccer, but they are a big club who will do fairly well in Serie A, and I hope Waya gets a lot of
1: minutes there. Yeah. I, I like the wingback aspect of it. We saw him do that a little bit for the U.S. and the Nations League. Uh, I wouldn't mind him uh, like doing the wingback thing, but then still obviously being involved in the attack, so it feels like it splits the difference from a U.S. T perspective. Uh, Goss, for you, are uh, you optimistic about those moves, and how are you feeling about the other rumors we've seen so far, like maybe Christian Pulisic to AC Milan?
3: So the starting center forward for PSV Eidenhoven is Luke de Jong. Oh, wow. Who is 33? 32.
1: 32. Oh, yeah. so I guess Joe has also done some research. I'm looking the, at it in right now. Moments. <laughs> got it, got
3: it, got it. <laughs> also, the other starting center forward is Goose Till, who's a 25-year-old Dutch, youth or Dutch international. Dutch yeah. international. Yeah. He was born in Zambia. Cool. I, I don't.
1: I don't think that's where Anthony Edwards is from. So now the uh, the Top Gun comparison falls apart Darn. a little bit. But wait, does that mean they play with a front two?
3: Uh, it. I'm just skimming through. Okay. It looks like mo- mainly it's a four two three one. Um, they have played in, mm-hmm. or at least it has been set up at times with two up front in a four four two. All right. Uh, um, so are you all right with those? I didn't want to see Pepe go back to Augsburg. And anyway, clearly he's scoring goals in the Netherlands. I'm happy for him to go to a club that will challenge him at a little bit of a higher level, play European competition. Uh, so I think it's a good move for him. I trust Timothy way at anywhere. Yep. So I'm stoked about that move.
1: There we go. And what about Pulisic to Milan? Would you I like think it's one? a good
3: move for him. I think it's one of those teams where he'll get playing time. He will still be pushed because there's expectations. Um, I think he can fit into the system because they play with those wide guys where he can get space to take guys one V one. Like, We've spent so much time with him coming inside and being a creator and a goal scorer on through balls and stuff. But I would like to see him play in a team in which, like Rafael Leao, he gets isolated every once in a while. And he can show the thing that I think was the point of him elevating through Dortmund into Chelsea, which was an elite 1v1 player on the wing, creating chances both for himself and his team. And I think Milan will give him that opportunity. Also, like, that's cool. We're, like, not past the point where it's not cool that an American will, like, legitimately play for Milan.
1: Yeah, having somebody at Milan and somebody at Juve feels like... A thing that in the '90s would have been a, a huge dream. deal. Same thing for the early 2000s. I'm going to say it's still a pretty big deal now. Those are pretty name brand. I still brand have clubs. my Gucci
3: Milan jersey. You See? know,
1: there we go for all the zero games he played there. Uh, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta support the. Taylor, Gooch that's Chester. U.S.
2: Soccer Sporting VP President Minor dude that right there that you're talking hey. about. You're slandering
1: hey, that's, him. That's the way to refer to him until he learns Paul Tenorio's name. I refuse to say his name. It's, it's, it's <laughs> Did a he not know Paul's true. name? He, when he was doing the pregame, he said after uh, Paul Tenorio broke the news about Berhalter being rehired, uh, when they had uh, Guchan to sort of explain the appointment, explain the decision-making process, he said, like, when you had the gentleman on the other evening to nice. talk about the story, because it, it had broken, I think, before they wanted it released, uh, but he did not say Paul Tenorio's name. So, uh, therefore, I will only say, USGM uh, said things about a man, and he should know his name. Uh, we so all know Florian Balligan's I... name. Hmm?
3: I was going to sidebar you for a second and say there's these players where when U.S. players get signed, there's, like, another player who they're competing with for minutes, and mm-hmm. sometimes they stick in your head. And the two main ones were Freddy Adu and Angel Di Maria got signed by Benfica at the same time, and Thiago Silva and Gooch got signed at the same time. And I, Thiago Silva was, like, kind of old for, like, a European first European uh-huh. move, and I was like, there's no way this guy's better than Gooch. <laughs> I still stand by that. I just want you to...
1: Know. I like that Thiago Silva was old when that move happened. He is still playing. Yeah, uh, for he,
3: sure. He, His son plays at a pretty high level now. Wow.
1: Wow. I feel young. Uh, Falorin Balogun, also likely to get a move this summer, has been told by Arsenal he can look for other opportunities. Uh, and we have a question about Balogun, or related to Balogun, uh, to start us off, from, from Sean Rosales. What's next for the USMNT after Balogun? Who's the next player the U.S. might target from a dual national perspective? Joe, I think there are different approaches to dual national recruitment. I don't know how many sort of like early 20s to mid-20s like eligible players that are out there that are going to create that buzz, that are going yeah. to be the players they go after. It feels like the next wave is sort of younger. At least that's what my answers would point to.
2: Yeah, my answer, my, all of my answers are younger as well. I yep. will say, you know, Balogun's 21 right now, right? So he, he was also young, but he was in a unique position of being a U.S. eligible player performing at a very high level in one of the largest leagues in the world, the, the fifth biggest and, and best league in the entire World, so Balogun is unique, absolutely, in this particular case. The other players that I think the U.S. should hop in the transfer portal and, and try to, to snag here, college football style. I've got Amir Richardson on my list. Um, he is a French. He's eligible for France, Morocco, and the United States. 21 years old. He's the son of former NBA player Michael Ray Richardson. Let's go, Mikey! I'll admit, that one predates me a little bit, but he did play in the NBA, and there's the American tie there. His mom is French and Moroccan, uh, according to the internet, which never lies. He's played for the French U-20s and the Moroccan U-23s. According to some very light Twitter reporting, U.S. soccer has been in contact with Richardson, but I'll be honest, I have no idea if that's true and it doesn't come from a particularly reputable place, but it is possible that U.S. soccer has been in contact with Richardson. He's six foot five, tall, skinny, plays for La Havre in Ligue 2, right now has played over 2,200 minutes in each of the last two seasons. So even as, I guess that would be like the very end of his teenage years, he was starting to become a real regular contributor for them. He's still raw, but very much likes to progress the ball in the dribble. And with his passing, you know, I mentioned the good left foot. He can cover ground like he's got that Paul Pogba stride in terms of how he moves around the field. There's room for him to get stronger and and to play faster. But he is a talented kid. Like, you know, Morocco made a deep run at the World Cup. They're interested in him as a player. He's been in their system. The same thing goes with France. Like, you don't make it into those setups at all, especially the the French U-20s, if you don't have something. Uh, I I think he is pretty far from the finished product. I'll be curious to see if he moves and and gets, you know, action at a slightly higher level. You know, it's possible that Duh is kind of his ceiling, but I think it's too early to tell for sure. Richardson is somebody that's been, you know, around US MNT fan circles for quite some time now. He's a name that's been tossed around a lot but we don't really know much more than that in terms of his contact with U.S. soccer. I like him as a player, but he's one on my list. I don't want to take all of them, so so maybe I'll, I'll throw to Goss now if he wants to drop one in because I don't want to steal all the spotlight.
3: Well, I just want to throw out the, what Mike Corey Richardson's famous for is in the 80s when all the NBA players were doing cocaine all the time, David Stern put in a new rule to suspend players, and Mike Corey Richardson was the first one to ever be suspended for a year from the NBA for drug use. Nice. So shout out to Mikey. He do you, do also you
1: equate that with his time with the Knicks? Is that what you're? Yeah, to tell pretty me? much. Okay. He also came
3: and spoke at one of my camps one time. So me and him are like
1: tight. I've actually been. Did he sniff recruiting a lot? And was Amir he really animated when he did so?
3: Huh? Did <laughs> he? No. <laughs>
1: yeah. No. He's yeah. an yeah. upstanding you are, person. You guys are gonna be great. Yeah. He taught
3: Definitely us shoot as much as you can. He taught us about coming back from problems and challenging yourself and fighting. Mm. So shout mm. out to Michael Ray Richardson, Knicks legend.
1: Um. Yeah. Uh, G- Amir it, was all right. A a random, 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 random thing. Every time you say his name, does that not also sound like an assassin? Like, I think it's because all assassins have three names, you know? John Wooks Booth, Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray. Uh, Mark David Chapman. Who are the assassins uh, you had on your mind? Yeah, man, <laughs> those a lot four, evidently. Yeah, Michael Michael Ray Richardson. I'm just saying that that could be uh, like uh, an assassin in another timeline. But for now, he is the father to Amir Richardson, Joe's first uh, yeah. pick. Uh Goss, sorry, where are you taking? One, one, sorry? We're
2: interrupting <laughs> Taylor left and oh, right. Boy. One other, one other quick note. I I totally biffed this in my notes. Lahav were promoted last Here's. year, so I mentioned playing at a higher level. So. We'll see like what his minutes look like in Liga and see how he does there. But that's a, a supernatural step forward for him. We'll see what that looks like.
1: Thank you. Biff corrected. Thank, Thank you. Unbiffed, biff, Joe. Unbiffed. Unbiffed. Yep. unbiffed. Gus, uh, you're you're a dual national.
3: Yeah. So this was tough, and I think sort of what Joe mentioned, which is there's not really like established players who are the next mm-hmm. through. So it is the long laundry list of this youth player who's playing for all these youth national teams. And I guess in what we're trying to do here is just pick which ones we think will hit in that scenario and then which ones you would work to lock down. Um, so I'm going to not start there. I'm going to start with a player who's already established and probably isn't going to be a high-end difference maker, but I think would be part of the group. And that's Mauricio Isias at Pachuca, um, born in North Carolina, raised mainly in the U.S., then went down and played in the Pachuca Academy, which is hands down the top academy in Mexico. Um, they've produced the highest level players over the last 15 years from Ace Ace all the way through. And he's now a full-time starter for a team that challenges and wins trophies consistently left footed player. So has played left back. Mainly He's played left wing a lot as well. I just think that is an asset that you have in a team in which not sure he's the starting left back, although he's younger than Jedi. So maybe he becomes it not sure he would start on the left wing, but it gives you an option in all those spots that doesn't really exist for the U S and gives you another natural wide player who is comfortable in possession can rotate in field and stuff. So, and would be a pretty big get, I think because he's, it feels like on the verge of being in the Mexico team as well. Interesting.
1: Interesting. I don't, I don't know much about him. Yeah. Uh, was called up by Mexico manager Tata Martino for Mexico's World Cup preparation friendlies against Iraq and Sweden, uh, featured on the bench, but did not make an appearance. uh, So obviously still eligible for both national teams at this point. Uh, That's, that's a great one, Goss. Um, I have two, again, similar thinking uh, youngsters. The first would be uh, Malik Sanogo, 18-year-old American forward for Union Berlin. No senior appearances for them. He's been on the bench, I believe, at least a couple times. Son of uh, former professional footballer Bubakar Sanogo, and he's eligible to represent Germany, USA, Ivory Coast. He has played for both Germany and the United States at youth level, hasn't committed to either just yet, uh, but could be another exciting prospect for a very exciting Union Berlin team. We know they're going to be, they did get Champions League, right? Or at the very least, they're going to be in Europe. I believe they were in Champions League spots. So maybe because of the fixture congestion, he gets some opportunities in the domestic campaign or in some cups this season, uh, but is eligible for three different national teams. So hopefully U.S. soccer, keeping an eye on him. Uh, Joe, who else was on your list?
2: Yeah, so the other two that I have, I have Brian Oko who is eligible for Switzerland, Nigeria, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the United States, 20-year-old just, center back. Yeah, go ahead and I just wanted someone else to pronounce it first. That's yeah. why I didn't do him first. <laughs> that's that's well played on your part, Cuts, the, the consummate <laughs> professional. Born in Houston, grew up in Switzerland, and has played for their youth national teams. This one feels like a long shot. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, kind of all these feel like long shots, but Balogun felt like the longest of long shots, and we know how that went. So I'm not putting anything past U.S. soccer right now. Uh, Oko plays for RB Salzburg. He made his debut in the Austrian Bundesliga last year, playing one minute, like the purest form of a debut for a young player. Like, not not two minutes, not one. One minute at the end of a game. He had just gotten back from a long-term knee injury that had kept him out for 18 months. He tore something in his knee. Uh, so it's, it's good to see him back, and he could be in line for more minutes in the Bundesliga this year, the Austrian Bundesliga, rather. At 20 years old, like you're already a veteran for RB Salzburg. So we'll see what kind of role he's in next year. But he's pretty composed on the ball from what I've seen. Likes to drive forward. You know, good right foot, solid athlete. Just needs experience and, and needs to refine his game. Some of his defensive reads. And even, even some of his decision-making on the ball as well in the back. The last one is Luca Koliosho. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure I got that pronunciation right. Eligible for Canada, Italy, Nigeria, and the US. 18 years old. Born in Connecticut, plays for Espanol in La Liga. Breaking through there at the moment, played 59 minutes last year in La Liga. His dad, according to the internet, is Nigerian and his mom is Italian-Canadian. Canada's already called him up to a senior team camp. I believe he went to that camp but didn't make his debut. So he's still kind of, you know, floating out there in the dual national world. Right-footed, likes to dribble, can be crafty on the ball. You know, like all these guys, just needs time to refine his game to become a bit more well-rounded in the attack. And just to to get better at making reads in the final third. So
1: he's the last player I've got on my list of three. Wow. United States, Canada, Nigeria, Italy. I'm used to the three uh team eligible player. Not not so much the four. Yeah. And he's played for what, the US and Italy so far. All well, right. That's that's another one I was listening Is Musa
2: four? Is Musa four Italy? Um and oh, he Italy England too? and the US and I don't remember if it was Ghana. Ghana. Yeah, Ghana. Yeah. Crazy. Uh wow. the
3: Koleosho one's the classic Canadian thing, which is every player in the Canadian pool is dual national. Cause like Um, immigration there is Mm -hmm. newer a bit than the U S the country's a little bit newer. And so literally every player, even if they're never going to play for another team is dual national eligible. So you always have Italian Canadian, Portuguese Canadian, Croatian Canadian, whatever it is. And then you add in the U S and Nigeria side. Um, I like Koleosho. I think he should play for Canada. Like I think he'll play and, I don't know that he would play for the U.S., but he has moved through the Espanol system more so than just, here's a guy who's in Europe, which excites us all, but nothing really ever happened, so I think that's a good shout. Um, Oko was clearly the top one on my list, left-footed center back, 20 years old, in a system that values him, and obviously the cliche connection that everyone keeps making is to Pamacano, who, if he was American, that'd be pretty exciting. So if that is in any way possible and As uh, I think Joe pointed out, he has played for Switzerland at every youth age level and has made no attempt to play for the U.S. so far. The one other name I'd throw in, or two other names I'd throw in in part on the dual national is Alex Mighton, who I think we've all talked about before. Uh, He's friends with Eunice Moussa from growing up at Nottingham Forest, a winger, has played only for England's youth national teams, but was born in Connecticut while his dad, I believe, was working at ESPN, worldwide leader in sports. Uh, and then Jonathan <laughs> Did Gomez. They pay you to say that? No, it's just natural, you know. <laughs> and then Jonathan Gomez, right?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, he is a dual national, and he is st- was yeah. at the U twenty World Cup, scored a cool goal. I'm I'm not especially high on Gomez. Might I know very very little about other than the name? But again, like, like we've said this kind of all throughout, these are these are darts that you're throwing at a board. Both that they'll hit and, and decide that maybe playing for the U S. is is what they want to do, and it's the best thing for them. But also that like they'll become contributing professionals at a high level. And and with
1: all of these guys, it's still kind of up for debate. Agreed. I think with most of these guys, it is still up for debate. The USMNT still up for debate, obviously. Uh, I actually had one more, but I'm wondering if he will come up in the next question we have. So let's take a quick break and then get to that one.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We're answering some U.S. and MLS-centric list of questions. Here comes your first MLS one from Kenneth Seiden. Uh, Goss, what MLS emerging talent has caught your eye this year?
3: What was my parameters for this? Whatever, Whatever you, you decided, you want baby. them to
1: yeah, be. I mean... Yeah. Emerging talent this year, so ideally not from last year or from, like, 1997. But, like, uh, like but probably,
2: probably like, younger than 29, I would say. 29 under Whoa. 29. No, I'm just kidding. I did under 21. I don't know what you did.
3: Because um, this one was tough for me just because it's pretty much anyone who has shown up and performed at a higher level than expected goes in it. And there's a lot of pieces in that. So I I didn't know what angle we were going in. So I'll just go with Alex Maton. I mean, this was a player that Ooh, I legitimately correct.
1: I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I legitimately I never that.
3: thought would play a minute in Major League Soccer and would go to like Romania, and I would never hear from again. And he has become a consistent player for Columbus and has played multiple positions now at a high level. Has helped them win, and now you're looking at a guy who there's probably going to be sell on value, but he could be around this team for four or five years uh, under Wilfred Nance, who clearly has a connection with him. So that was. Him and Alvaro Barial were like the two that popped for me. But Barial had a good year to close out last year, so there was more expectations there. I think Barial's taken his game to a level that I didn't think he'd get to in
1: Major League Soccer. Uh, Joe, either of them on your list?
2: No, I went, like I said, I went a little bit younger than than Barial, who I believe is 22, and Matan is 23. But those are both good picks, like relative to expectations, Matan especially. I'm not sure that he's going to be a starter for this team four years from now like if he has something's probably either gone very right for him or very wrong for Columbus but like he he will be a useful squad player for them he popped up in in deeper midfield positions i believe that was over the weekend with all these weird gold cup absences affecting how these mls games go but he's a he's a good ball progressor pretty clean uh, in in tight spots just doesn't create a lot. And so, you know, there are some limitations to his game. But I like both of those picks from you guys. I went with Noel Buck, who I think might be the player you were referencing earlier, Taylor. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Just turned 18 a couple of months ago. Has started 14 games for the New England Revolution and played over 1,200 minutes. He has played for the US youth national teams, but is eligible for England and Wales. Has been in contact with England as well in their federation. Has never been like over that. for a camp yet. But uh, we'll see what ends up happening on the dual national side. But as a player, like this kid is super talented. And I'm not sure I've seen someone with his combination of attributes before. Certainly in in U.S. soccer youth development landscape. Left-footed, like super solid build, like a stocky dude that I've never seen him in person up close. But he gives off tight end vibes a little bit in in some ways. So maybe not quite that big, but he's he's kind of a a big dude. Good dribbler offers a little bit in the final third, strikes the ball really, really well. There's still tons of room for him to improve, like with all these young players. His speed of play isn't fast enough. I don't think his passing game is good enough in general, even though he does hit the ball well with that left foot. I think, though, a lot of that's going to come with this next move. And it sounds like he's going to move sooner rather than later, probably in the winter. Uh, And and, and maybe winter to move in the following summer. Maybe a deal is agreed to this summer to move in the winter. I don't know what that's going to look like. But the Revs... I mean, you you watch an MLS game and then you go and watch like a a high level Premier League game and the speed of play is totally different, right? Just because as players move up the ladder, you know, they're they're forced to do stuff faster. Otherwise, they're going to get run over with the ball at their feet. Buck, I think, needs to be in that environment to be forced to adapt his game like he, he needs that. And some teams move the ball better than the revs, right? Most teams, frankly, move the ball better than the revs. So in some ways, that's a challenging environment for him to really be forced to improve. But he's tackled pretty much everything this year with with grace, and I, I really like Buck's game. I've also got Diego Luna on my list, and Brian Gutierrez and Chris Brady on my list as far as U.S. players. Uh, Luna, at the U-20 World Cup, played like 90 minutes across the entire MLS season before he went down to Argentina. Now has started four straight games for Pablo Mastorini, has a goal and an assist in his last two games, and RSL haven't lost since he started games in that four-game stretch. So I don't know. That's maybe a little bit of a loose tie there, but... Like, he's been really good. He's putting up some legit numbers. All he wants to do is just, like, dance around the field and sauce people up. Like, that's what he's built for. And he's just really, really good at it. I don't know what his career is going to look like. But as someone that I've watched in person, you know, from his time in academy systems, I didn't really know if he was going to make it to this level because he's got kind of a weird build and he's not super athletic and it feels like soccer is trending in a very particular direction when it comes to athleticism. But, man, he's been awesome to watch for RSL and has been a, a really effective part of that team. Gutierrez and Brady, just both good young players for Chicago. Gutierrez just turned 20. Brady's 19. I think they both have national team upside. Lots of time between now and then, but I, I like both of those players a lot.
1: Uh, I like Nobuck uh, quite a bit as well. Joe. I watched him play against LAFC in early March. I'm checking my my player Uh, spreadsheet here. Uh, And I noted that like the opening minutes of watching him, he coughs the ball up twice under pressure, uh, which I was a little bit concerned about. Obviously the youth maybe is part of that, but then also watching that game and realizing that he was the one that LAFC were sort of focusing their press on when it went into his feet. They were trying to not let him turn and play forward. They're trying to make him go backwards every time. And so I think when you've got a youngster who seems to be so instrumental in in the way his team wants to play, that the opposition team is really focused on shutting him down. I thought that was uh, pretty revealing. And then I thought his uh, defensive positioning work rate all seemed pretty solid. Is there anything you'd like to see him specifically improve on, nobuck
2: Yeah, I think his his speed of play, like I mentioned, and, and it's just his progressive passing. I think he's a, a decent passer, but I think there's so much room for him to get rid of the ball a little bit quicker, to make his reads faster when he's on the ball in possession. I think that's an area. And then I think he can become a lot more dangerous in the final third as well. Like I mentioned how good he is at striking the ball with that left foot. I can see him becoming like a really high-level box-to-box number eight where he's just sort of crashing at both ends and bringing you legit production in both boxes. He's just not quite there yet. But man, of all these players and maybe of all of the the players that even, I guess Goss mentioned and all the young players in MLS right now, Buck is the one who I I think might have the highest ceiling. Luna's probably right in that camp as well. There's a lot that has to happen for these players to reach their ceiling. But, man, Buck in particular is is somebody that I I think has a really bright future or at least could have a very bright future ahead of him.
3: I agree with you. And he was on my list of dual nationals, which I think he was on all of our lists. Still wondering what Wales is doing, if England and the U.S. are talking to him. I don't really know that Wales has, like, the deepest roster in the world. Um, but he has added, or he has pushed at least a little bit more into that final third over the last month. And we saw him score a goal, but just be more dangerous. And I think that's changed a little bit the gravity of space on the field for Carlos Hill and for a pollster or Latif when he's in there to make their lives easier. Is that Buck now at least seems like a threat, that he might try and take someone, and, you know, make a progressive dribble into into the final third or shoot. And that's helped the revs as they've gone along. Can I add two more in here? Um, so one would be my one disagreement, I think, about the highest ceiling. I still think it's Kromaski, who that was as-
1: my dual national that I had. oh, oh okay. nice. All right. There you go.
3: Mm-hmm. Who is the show's this show's favorite person now after my very specific uh preview and now what he's done over the time. But yeah, I I think he's just I've said it before, I think he's like a Thomas Mueller style player of just like high IQ, right place, right time. He's more of a goal scorer than what he has shown because the team's bad, and he's a teenager playing in Major League Soccer for the first time, but he's eligible for Argentina. The other name i throw in is Duncan McGuire, who, coming out of the draft, is now probably unseated a designated player as a starting center forward. I don't know if we're talking about a national team player or not. Like I don't really have a good enough feel for what his overall game can be and, and is, but he is effective, and he understands... At this point, how to space himself on the field, and he's willing to throw his body into literally anything that presents itself to try and help the team.
1: All right. I like all of those answers. Uh, I'm glad that you had Gramosky, uh, so that I don't feel quite as foolish. The longer we went without mentioning him, the more I was like, do they know something I don't? Does he not play in MLS anymore? Is he just straight up bad and I missed some things? So that's good to know. I don't know what will happen with every single player in the world moving to Inter-Miami in the next six months or so. Uh, that might limit his playing time just a little bit. Uh, we shall see. Uh, I want to move us to a different MLS question now. I have... Zero notes for this one, because I'm just going to get out of the way and let you two go at it. David Befford asks, or says, give us your Bob Bradley take. Does the firing make sense? Will he be able to blame it on the turf? Do we expect him to pop up in MLS again? Uh, As I was asking this question, David Goss got up. I'm assuming because he feels so passionately about Bob Bradley that we're going to let Joe Lowry answer first. Joe, go
2: ahead. <laughs> uh, will he be able to blame it on the turf? No. Do we expect him to pop up in MLS again? Yes. All right. Cool. Yeah. Got those two out of the way. Now I What's will give the my turf joke. I, I'm I'm not totally okay. sure about that. Yeah, I they didn't don't know play on turf. Bob Bradley, turf, BMO, turf do they? Thing. Yeah, that's 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 true. Maybe he has blamed it on turf before. The, I, I don't know about that. Nice. Yeah. There we there we go, Taylor. Um, okay, my Bob Bradley take. Toronto are bad they're second to the last in the east. Um technically it's possible that if Miami had played the same number of games that they could be behind Miami. You don't want to be behind Miami. That's that's a, that's that's not a good thing. Bob Bradley, the coach, did not make them into more than the sum of their parts and, and that is certainly a problem. There were also major cultural cultural issues at the club. Bob's relationship with Michael Bradley, his son, starting defensive midfielder when healthy. That relationship spilling over into the team and making players uncomfortable with Michael's presence in the locker room is not good, and that has been a problem in past stops as well. Issues with the Italian stars in Bernadeschi and Insigne not getting along with Bob Bradley, um, not not really falling in line in some instances, that's a problem. Then you have the fact that Bob Bradley was the sporting director for Toronto FC as well, and that he's been responsible for signing a ton of the players in the squad. He has not done a good job of that. Like He's relied on a lot of players that he's seen up close, either have played for him before in past stops in his career over in Europe and even in MLS, or players that he's, he's coached against and, and been impressed with, which is not always a bad thing, but I think there's a pattern there in terms of signing Sigurd Rosted from Norway when he played against him with Stabak, signing Adama Diomande, a 33-year-old injury-prone forward who has looked 33 years old and injury-prone all <laughs> season long for Toronto. He's now played for Bob Bradley three times in terms of that would have been in Norway as well, and LAFC. Mark Anthony Kay was brought over after Bob Bradley was here. His prime, I think, was, was past him at that point, and it's easier to say that in hindsight, but I think we can say that pretty clearly now. Like, those signings haven't really worked. If you want to go sign players that are, are going to come in and be awesome for you and you know that they're awesome, great, but if you're just kind of relying on your network maybe a little bit too much, I think I think that's a problem, and not taking full advantage of other scouting methods Lots of the other offseason signings haven't looked good, or at least not as good as we thought they could in Toronto. I'll be honest, like, all the sporting director stuff is, is a problem, and I think that's probably the thing that, that doomed Bradley. I think that's the thing that should have doomed Bradley the most out of all of this stuff. I'm not sure if that's really true. But honestly, I'm, I'm not sure how many of those signings really matter when you have Insigne and Bernadeschi firing on all cylinders. Like, if those two players are playing at the level that we know they can, I think the pieces in Toronto are good enough for them to be really, really good in MLS. Like, if Insigne is playing like Insigne of a year or two ago, and Bernadeschi is playing like we saw in in glimpses during his time at Juve, like I think this team is going to be a real contender, regardless of who's coaching them, regardless of what the other pieces around them, as long as they're, like, average-ish MLS players. And Toronto has a ton of those players. Sapong, Osorio, Michael Bradley, when he's healthy. Like, they, they can do this job. But the problem is... It doesn't seem like Insigne game Bernadeschi were ever going to really show up under Bob Bradley. They hadn't been doing it. It didn't feel like we were trending in that direction. So between that, the on-field issues that have sort of resulted from those problems, cultural issues, missing on some signings around the fringes of the squad, and even in more key roles, I'm not surprised that this happened. And I think it makes sense for Toronto. I think this was
1: the right thing for them to do. Goss, where are you on this one? Uh, I would...
3: Agree with the first two answers that Joe said, although I would, I threw out there yesterday. I, I, I think it would be fun to see him go manage a national team again. And my friend, Eddie Mendez, who was the biggest Costa Rica person on the planet, he threw that out there as well for a Costa Rica. And I think for some of these national teams, he would be a really good pick. Or even if you go down and you talk about the chaos that's been Colombia over the last few years, Peru as well. Now, obviously they have their manager. Um, uh, post-Gareca, but I think he could be really interesting in those jobs. But if I was an MLS team, I would hire Bob Bradley tomorrow. I agree with pretty much everything Joe said after that. Uh, the main issues are not maximizing the talent on the team and then the sporting director problems of leaning on Diamande, leaning on Mark Anthony K, uh, obviously Michael Bradley as well. The problems for Toronto, though, all start above Bob Bradley. Yes, They start with Bill true. Manning, who is president of the team, He's in charge of both the business and sporting side. He's the one who signed Insigne. He's the one who made the deal for Bernadeschi, who apparently have never had a relationship and don't get along as human beings, which is sort of the type of thing you want to research before they get to your team. Um, Insigne, at the time when they signed him, I said, great. It's not my money. I think everyone can look at the numbers and say, for that number, you could probably go out and find other players And it felt like a regressive move in that Javinko worked. Javinko was a league-changing signing. Let's just do it again. The rest of the league has shifted in the last 10 years since you brought Javinko in. And so the lack of creativity, the lack of critical thinking to say, how can we continue to progress the league and progress our club? That's what stands out. You add on to that. My understanding is that's where the Matt Hedges signing came from. That's where Petrasso came from. As well, you've obviously kept Michael Bradley in the team. All of that's pre-Bob Bradley. So a lot of the structural issues that exist in this club and in this team have nothing to do with Bob Bradley. And when you look at Major League Soccer and you look at some of the most successful and smartest people working around the league, they have left Toronto because they don't think it's a functional club and they don't want to work with or for Bill Manning. And Bill Manning, the rumors are, goes on transfer market, looks who's available, looks at the you know, population center in, in Toronto, he, and says he
1: straight up said that. That's Can not I get a fans? Rumor. Exactly, <laughs> that, yeah, that's fair, his own right. it's not reported yeah. if
3: you say it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is to me from the outside really depressing because I think Toronto was building itself into a special club in Major League Soccer and it has taken itself backwards for such a long time now. Um, Greg Vanny, I don't know publicly or privately said I would like to be here. That I, I couldn't get an explanation of what the future looked like. That's a guy who was the academy director and then the head coach. Not that he's doing amazing in the, at the Galaxy. So I get that. It's not perfection that if he had stayed, it would all have been great. But he took you to three MLS Cups, a CCL final, multiple Canadian championships. He didn't say he didn't want to be there. He said, I could not understand the future of this club because it couldn't be properly explained to me or expressed to me. And so he left. And Robin Fraser, of course, had already left. Now you're on your fourth manager in the last three years. Two of them interim. That is dysfunction at a club. That's dysfunction that exists outside of Bob Bradley.
2: Yes. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I do want to hit back at the Insigne stuff, though. Uh, G- if Giovinco was a game-changing signing in MLS, Lorenzo Insigne at 30, so a little bit past his prime, but at 30 years old, Lorenzo Insigne, like a legitimate Italian national team legend, Serie A legend, I, I don't think you can blame Toronto and Bill Manning for trying to make that happen and for, for taking that swing. I think that's maybe maybe that was your take all along, Goss. But at the time, I was all about that move, and and still, I think there was a lot of real reasons why you know that was something worth trying. What I will say is, I agree with everything else you just said. Like, Bill Manning is certainly seems like a problem for this organization. The fact that they're understaffed, the fact that he likes to have his fingers dipped into all the pots and likes to do a little bit too much, and, and maybe is doing too much and isn't particularly good or qualified, and a lot of the stuff he's doing in terms of identifying players and leading some of the search for that stuff, that's that's all a problem. And it could be a long road back for Toronto because their cap situation is not good in terms of rebuilding the squad. They, they went out and, and overpaid because they were trying to compete for a trophy this year. They went I'm out and, and signed contracts. Yeah, yeah, on big money deals for a lot of these players that, that kind of hamstring their ability to go out and, and do stuff in the future. What I will say is I was listening to Extra Time yesterday, Goss, and maybe you guys know something I don't know. Yeah, Goss, give me the thumbs up. There you go. There's the plug. I was listening, and maybe you guys know something I don't know. It doesn't feel like Toronto is like unable to compete. This year they are. I mentioned how bad they are. Next year, or the, the year after, Insigne and Bernadeschi are under contract until 2026, both of them. You've got two more seasons, like two more full seasons to try and make a swing and, and really do this thing under a manager that might be able to get some more buy-in from those players. It doesn't feel like all is lost for Toronto. I agree that there are major structural issues, but if they've papered over the cracks with this roster, I don't see why you couldn't come into next season with a new manager, ideally with more infrastructure behind them. They're able to salvage the current squad and make a couple of moves around the edges to try and strengthen, make a couple of deals to offload some, some contracts to other teams. And then you know, add a couple of pieces and, and actually do this thing next year. Maybe I'm just the fool for continuing to come back to the well. Like, oh, it didn't work last year at the end of the season. It didn't work in 2023. Like, maybe it's it's maybe it's going to happen in 24. That doesn't feel impossible, though. Goss, does it? So, I get I get what you're saying, and I think this is
3: sort of one of the tough things with Toronto is like you want to have a name conversation and like a quality conversation. I think one of the biggest issues with this club is. All of the people that we're talking about that have had issues are on long-term contracts because Toronto had to convince them to come. So Matt Hedges, two guaranteed years. Sean Johnson, Tam Deal through 2024. Pa, uh, Petras or not Patraso, sorry. I keep Petretta, saying the wrong. name. on a long-term contract as well through 2026, I believe, maybe 2025. And then all the other pieces, or those pieces included, they're old and they're injury-prone. And that's the part where... If Kay and Bradley and Osorio and Hedges and Bernadeschi and Insigne are all healthy for the full year and playing at a high level, great. But is Insigne going to be more healthy next year than he was this year where he's already been out for two and a half months? Is Kay going to get better? Is Matt Hedges going to be more healthy next year? Is Sean Johnson? And so that's where the flaw in this team is MLS is a long season with a lot of travel and a lot of BS in between and this is a team that was built to be thin and have to hit at its optimal level with a bunch of players who probably physically aren't capable of doing it anymore, they should always be better than where they are in the standings. Like, if you just try in Major League Soccer, if you give effort, you will be around a playoff line. They have not given effort. So I think saying they, they could be better next year is fair. Not, I don't believe anywhere in the stratosphere of what they've spent for, I mean, they're the highest spending roster in the league and where they should be with all of these these pieces. I'd be shocked if Bernadeschi was back after the season, just after everything that's happened and because I think he's the only one that has sell on yeah, value. Yeah,
2: but, but then you've got a DP spot, right? Like, then you've got a DP spot and then you can spend wherever you want to go get that because Toronto have shown they're going to spend. No, I think you're right, though, guys. I think that makes sense. If If this is a fair paraphrase of what you're saying, like, they could be good next year, but the odds of being as good as they should be are low.
3: And the best player on the team, Richie Larea, is on loan as the most expensive <laughs> right back in the league. So if they want to bring him back, they have to spend more. They would then have yeah. the, high, the most expensive left back, the most expensive right back in the league. Their three starting center mids for the year don't like have been hurt yeah. the entire season. Yeah. So if all of that works out and they make some moves around the margins, all of that I think is great. But the roster is broken, it feels like, for a little bit of time. There aren't a ton of mechanisms in MLS to be like, I have this bad contract, you'll take it and I'll give you this. Like, you know, in the NBA or NFL where it's like, I give you a draft pick and you take my guy. So, I think there's enough teams with cap space who look out there and say, like, we'll take Sean Johnson. Because, like, he's a good player and, you know, he's a good presence and he's a winner and we'll take him. But I don't think there's a lot of ways to get out of a lot of these. They've also killed some academy pieces along the way, like a Jaden Nelson who they kind of let go for nothing who could fill minutes and be a piece that maybe you can move with someone Ralph Preso on the flip for Mark Anthony K. So they, I think they've already even used some of the assets they have to get out of a lot of this. They should, they will probably be better this year. Like normally when a coach gets fired, the team plays a little bit better. As we have stated a bunch of times, there's talent, especially on the wings in this team. So if they're happier and they try hard, like they'll probably make a playoff push, but I think the odds of them being an MLS Cup contender over the next two years are pretty low.
1: I successfully got out of the way of that question. Uh, And in doing so, I learned uh, Bob Bradley in July of 2021 after LAFC lost a late game at uh, or late like to a late winner at Portland, uh, complained about the turf and said that like soccer on turf isn't soccer. It's a different sport entirely uh, as a way to sort of mitigate that loss. So I'm guessing that's what that is in reference to.
3: Do you have a place you'd put Bob or Something somewhere you'd like to see him? Me? Yeah. Or Joe.
1: I mean, I think the Costa Rica shout is pretty fascinating. I'd like to see, I, I mean, he has the experience with Egypt as well. So it's not just, he's only managed the United States. Uh I think, I think a, a national team would be, would be pretty fun for him. Uh Short of that, uh there's going to be, I'm going to guess some vacancies in major league soccer. That, that seems to be the way it works. So, I don't know. I don't know if there's any one place that I feel like it would be more fun to see him. Maybe LA. Let's take him back to LA and he can go to the Galaxy uh, and and we'll see what happens there. Uh Joe, what about you? Is there any place in particular you'd like Bob Bradley to be?
2: Yeah, LA Galaxy sounds spicy. Let's let's make that happen. I don't I don't really have a strong preference on on what She'll happens next with Bob Bradley. Yeah, there you go. go. Let's let's yeah. run it
1: back and and see how Bob in the Premier League works out. Perfect. Perfect. Um let's take one more quick break and then we've got three more questions to get to back
0: soon.
1: Welcome back. I got out of the way in the last one. I'm probably going to do the same here. Jason O asks, uh, which MLS team is m- in most danger of slipping in the second half of the season if they don't make a significant move in the transfer window? Do both of you have a few answers to this one, or do you each have one primary answer? I have two primary answers, I think. Goss? Mr. Goss? Um...
3: I have one main one, but
2: 18 other ones that I could fall There we into.
3: go. All
1: right, Joe, go ahead, and, go ahead and give us your first one.
2: All right, so my, my top answer, I think the most obvious one, is Atlanta United. Uh, they, they've already lost DP winger Luis Araujo, who's moved back to Brazil. It's not like a massive loss for them, to be honest. He, he was never a super productive MLS player. Wasn't scoring a lot, wasn't creating a ton of danger, was holding on to the ball for a long time in the final third, if that's the kind of thing you're looking for. I do think this is a huge chance for Atlanta United to get better quickly. They've had to deal with some international absences this summer, and they have slipped already with sort of some some different players having to rotate in to that attack. They're sixth in the East right now. They've been higher up the table. They've won just one of their last seven games in MLS. So I think they need a signing to sort of get some momentum back. And it's just such an obvious time for them in the, in the secondary transfer window, the summer window. That's July 5th to August 2nd, I believe, is when that window was open. It's such an obvious and natural time for them to go out there and find what really will be you know an, another, one, another big signing for Garth Lagerway. I think he's had some success, and Atlanta have, have had some success this season making some big moves. Yakimakis is, is fantastic. He is the best number nine in Major League Soccer. If they can pair Yakamaki's with a chance-creating dynamic winger, a goal scorer as well, I think that will be huge for them. And maybe they'll need to do some work replacing Almada. I don't know if that's going to happen. It feels more unlikely than not that he moves in this summer window. But that's just me reading the tea leaves more than anything else. I think Atlanta are positioned to go out there and make a move. I think they will. And I think it could really define the second half or or second, last third. I guess it's going to be the last third of the MLS season. So I'm just
3: curious, what would be a drop? Like they're sixth in the East now. Yeah. So like well, where
2: they've already they've won one of seven. Like they're they're not performing so at, at a particularly high level. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's actually gonna happen, but would I be yeah. surprised if they continue to underperform? May, maybe a drop in this case is both the standings and just the level of where this group mm-hmm. should be playing. And there's a subjective element to that. But I could see them, you know, they've already dropped a little bit, and I could see them either hanging close to where they are or dropping a little bit more in the east if they're rolling out like Caleb Wiley and Derek Etienne as the two wingers and Almad has gone. Like there there are ways that this Atlanta season kind of goes off the rails.
3: I think I think that's fair. I I think the obvious one is St. Louis.
2: Um, they're my they're number 2. In, yep. Yeah,
3: they're first in the Western Conference. We at we were told Klaus would be out 4 weeks, now we're being told he'll be reassessed in 2 weeks. That that never goes well. So when you look at a team where you got a lot of pieces in this group that just haven't been through the grind. They don't know what Five weather-delayed games that have to get restarted and a trip to Vancouver, a midweek on turf feels like over the course of six or seven months. And now you add in Leagues Cup and you add in the level that they're playing at, as well as historically the way the Red Bull press has worked through a season. Um, Bradley Carnell doesn't play it exactly the same, but it's not that far off. And when you look at the New York Red Bulls, they normally start strong and fall off as the season goes along because of heat and because of travel, and because of just wear and tear. And so all of that sort of goes against this team to say like, got a lot of guys who have I think overperformed, and if anyone regresses, especially if you talk about losing two designated players to injury right now, um, it could fall pretty quickly. Now, I don't think they'll fall out of like a home playoff gamey spot, which I know the format's changed, so we maybe have to reassess how I term that, but Top four or five, like, I don't think they'll fall past that. I do think it could shift more specifically to this question with the big signing. And Robert Firmino, obviously, is like the huge rumor. But I think the big signing just gives you that boost if things start to sag where a team starts to get confidence and it just, I think, it gives a team energy at times, although it takes players a really long time to adjust to this league as well. Um, But, you know, no matter what, it's going to be a better season than I think they could have even hoped for. But I would be shocked if they finished
1: top in the West. Joe, other nominees for you?
2: Yeah, that got that's perfectly explained and absolutely agree with St. Louis. The last one I have, and this is, I guess, an obvious one, and I'm not really sure that they should fully count here, it's the Houston Dynamo. They're fourth in the West, but they're out kicking their coverage a little a little bit in terms of getting some big wins recently and, and maybe overperforming a bit. I think this team is better off than they've been before. But the West is super congested. Fourth to ninth is separated by two points in the Western Conference. So they have flexibility to sign one more U22 initiative player. It's hard to say if, if those players are going to be difference makers. Odds are they're probably not. But this Dynamo team will need something. They're missing Karaskia, They're missing you know, players for and have been missing players for international duty. He's the most important one. I think if Houston want to stay up near the top half of the Western Conference, or, or even if they want to be a guaranteed playoff team, they either need to find something within their squad to take them to the next level, and they, maybe they've already done a bit of that as they've gotten more comfortable under Ben Olsen, who I think has done a very good job. And the, the team has, has been better than I thought they'd be this year. But they either need to find something within or they need to find something outside the club to, to continue to give them a boost. I'm not
1: optimistic that that's going to happen, but time will tell. Joe, with Houston, did you mention low attendance yet? Because as I understand it... We're, it's a mandatory requirement that when you talk about Houston, you also have to mention low attendance.
2: If you're Hector Herrera, basically it okay. is. I
1: mean, I, I didn't actually listen to that <laughs> press conference, but I, I saw that
2: he kind of called out Houston soccer fans and said, come watch us. He's Go, go watch Houston, but also Houston. Like, sign better players and be better at soccer. Well, well. his point you're doing was... doing good, but do when, more of that.
3: His point was, I come here with Mexico, and so many fans come out, and it's like, yeah, and then the Dynamo had to spend $10 million on you because of that, and you're like borderline not good enough to make that worth it and so people don't come out to watch the team because it's the not, team's not Herrera's fault yeah. it's not Hector what? Herrera's fault it would help no if- way. he was better at soccer He's- but- oh wow I yeah all right we should move on <laughs> um no I think Houston's a good shout. the problem is they don't have the space to make a move and they probably won't the other one for me that specifically fits this I think is San Jose and I talked about it, I think a little bit last week or yesterday whenever I don't know what I do um which is they just they put the team together pretty late on, and Chris Leach left flexibility under Almeida, and everyone was on a short-term contract because they knew Almeida was leaving, but they couldn't buy him out. And then Lucha Gonzalez came in late. So this is a team where I think their best 11 they feel really good about and they can compete. It's rare to have your best 11 on the field that often in MLS. So if they were able to bring another piece in just to supplement the team,
1: I think that would be pretty big. All right, Uh, well-answered, my friends. Uh, Next question from Drew Trammell. Yunus Musa needs to leave Valencia this summer for a variety of reasons, right? Yes, Drew, I would agree with that. West Ham are linked, seems like a legitimate rumor. Would this be a good team and situation, or should he look elsewhere to vastly increase the likelihood of minutes? Uh, I think a lot of it depends on how much David Moyes is willing to coach him versus expecting a finished product. I also think... A lot of it depends on if David Moyes finds himself in another relegation battle. Uh, If David Moyes were to be sacked, then I feel like Eunice Moose is right back in the same situation at Valencia, where it's different positions, different responsibilities, and different managers. Uh, I I have further arguments as to why I think it could be a good idea for him to go to West Ham. Uh, But Joe, why don't you share your thoughts first? I I think it's a decent idea. I I don't agree
2: with the entire premise of the question from Drew in terms of vastly needing to increase his minutes. He played 2,100 minutes last year for Valencia. He played 33 games. I don't think that's the real issue with his time in La Liga. There are yep. concerns, frankly, about some off-field stuff in La Liga, and, and yep. the fact that Vinicius Jr. seems to be targeted left and right by racial abuse, and, and that's not a comfortable situation for for anybody to be in, I wouldn't imagine. So that's a piece of this. But on, on the sporting side as well, He's just had to flip back and forth between position and position, wing, midfield, manager, manager, manager. He's done so many different things at Valencia and played under so many different managers in such a short amount of time. I think you want to try to go somewhere with a bit more stability. And I do think West Ham would offer more stability than than Valencia, certainly. And I I think he would play as well. Maybe that's blind confidence in an American player, but I think Musa is legitimately good enough to go in there and eat up a lot of Declan Rice's minutes. So it was Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek, and David Moyes' midfield last year, most of the time it was a 4-2-3-1 from what I've seen. Rice was like the number one guy. He's the big name in that team. He's gonna go to a, a big six Premier League club this offseason. He played 3,200 minutes last year. That's a lot of minutes that are gonna need to be filled by somebody. So Suchek will continue, I would imagine, to be the, the, deep, the deepest player, the more defensive-minded player and all that stuff. And then you've got Flynn Downis, 24-year-old midfielder who was like kind of the third guy in the rotation. Suchek and, and Rice like never missed any time. So he didn't play a ton. But between Premier League and, and Europa Conference League, he did get, you know, more than a thousand minutes across both of those competitions. So I think Musa would play. I think he would be a decent fit. They defend a lot, West Ham under David Moyes, because they don't have a ton of talent. That's kind of boring and, and not exactly my favorite thing for Musa at this point in his career. I'd like him to develop his passing game. West Ham is at least is a club where you can say there's a spot for Musa, and a lot of the the pass heavy teams in England are probably a bit too good for him at this point in his career. So I think West Ham will be fine. He'll test himself at a higher level. He'll probably play a fairly similar amount. They've got Europa League games this year after winning the Europa Conference League last year. I assume they all got tattoos to commemorate that that beautiful moment. I don't know for sure, but long story short, I, I think this would be a solid move. Musa would get to play at a higher level, and I like it.
1: I I, again, I just I hope that it's a situation which were he to go there, that David Moyes is able to work with him, play him in a specific role, if not a specific position, and just sort of give him that stability to improve those aspects of his game. I think you need that consistency, especially as a young player, to be able to improve any aspect of your game. Uh, So I, I think it could work. The relegation battle thing, and then him being surplus to requirement because they're in a scrap and they need proven veterans or something like that, has me slightly concerned.
2: The relegation battle, I think, is fair. I mean, West Ham finished 14th last year. Again, they weren't a very good team. I don't. Do you think that would displace Musa? Like, if they're if they're fighting, you don't think Musa would go and be one of the two best central midfielders on the team, and, and as a result, he would play?
1: Or I I guess I'm not fully following your logic there. Today. I I, th- I think the idea for me is. If he's coming in as a, let's say, a Declan Rice replacement, I don't think he is yet at the standard no, to do that. Certainly, so not. you're basically bringing him to learn to do that role. But we've seen this in the past, where if you have a youngster coming in to learn a role for a team that is suddenly in a bit of crisis. The youngster learning is very much on the back burner while the team focuses on present priorities of staying up, the manager not getting sacked. And so then you have a player who could be playing, who could be getting that individualized instruction, now sort of just going through the team training, In the squad, getting substitute minutes at the end, but not having that sort of dedicated role, that dedicated instruction. I feel like it's basically just, do you have the time and the bandwidth to be able to kind of give him a little bit more? And I think to help him become that more fully rounded, fully developed player. I don't think he's far off. I I was really impressed with what we saw with him as that single pivot uh, in the Nations League, not the same thing at all but I think he is more capable of doing a number of different things than I thought he might be so that's where I am largely positive on this one uh if we're looking at other places that could be interesting I had two uh if Moises Caicedo is sold from Brighton uh, him going there could be pretty interesting. That feels like a Brighton player, a youngster who who's ready to kind of make that leap to the next level and then he'll be sold for $60 million next summer. And then, this is a bit more random, but I really liked Bayer Leverkusen under Xavi Alonso, uh, seeing how he got that team to basically play very system-structured football that then allowed for improvisation and adaptation, that seems like something where if you're bringing Yunus Musa into a system where he can become part of that one and then evolve his game, that also uh, seems like one that would work and would have him playing at a high level. So, I wouldn't mind him at Brighton, wouldn't mind him at Leverkusen, wouldn't mind him at West Ham either. David Goss, what about you? Where are you on the So,
3: this the West Ham one, I think I agree mainly with you, which is, I think it's the right, like, level of team and abstract of, like, Pretty big name, Premier League, Europa League, won a thing last year, but I don't see the fit for him right now, and that worries me of I don't know that he would be a full-time starter in that spot, and then you yeah. don't know
1: what happens once uh, you're not locked sorry. in. I sorry, I, I should add, sorry, Joe, I should add, like, I don't really have huge concerns about West Ham getting relegated necessarily. Uh, it And not that either of you are like insisting that they might. It's more that when Moyes kept them up, there was the long sort of drawn out process of him getting like fully appointed and being their permanent manager. It didn't seem like he was the man they necessarily Definitely wanted, and they had a maybe a little bit of a look around to see who else was out there. So I think that is where some of that hesitation about what could happen if David Moyes isn't there, if he comes under pressure, comes from for me. Uh Sorry, Gos, that was a bit of a non sequitur. And Joe, sorry, I'm well. like Joe,
2: go ahead. I don't know why this just got me so good. This doesn't matter that much, and we'll see where Musa ends up.
1: I, just furious. I,
2: I don't understand how Musa is more is guaranteed for more minutes at Brighton than he is at, at West Ham. Like if you go and look at the depth charts, and I, granted, I have not watched every minute of these two teams. In terms of like the level, I'd love him to go to Brighton. I think if he could break into that midfield, it would be awesome. They've yeah. already made midfield signings this summer. Like Casado's gonna go, but they've got a bunch of players who can play in that area. With West Ham, it's literally Declan Rice who will be sold, Thomas Suchek who will be a starter, Connor Coventry who's a player that I, I don't think played at all for them last year, and, and you know isn't doesn't seem like he's going uh, to to be a real part of this team, and Flynn Down. So I mentioned already, who was a, the third midfielder in the squad. The question as of now, if Musa goes and he's the only midfield signing they make, one in, Musa, one out, Declan Rice, the question is just can he beat out Flynn Downs? If he can't do that, like we, we should not be so excited about Eunice Musa as a player. I don't understand how like he, him, think, his minutes you, are up in question here. Do you think Eunice Musa and Declan Rice have a similar game? No, I've never approached this transfer from Yunus Musa replacing Declan Rice. If if West Ham are looking for a Declan Rice replacement, they're in a tough spot because they're never going to find one for what they can afford. That is the life of a club that is a mid to lower table Premier League team. You develop a good player, they get sold on. You have to figure out how to adapt your team to replace that player. You're not going to find a like for like at the same level ever in the Premier League or or really at any of these teams when you replace somebody that's going to be sold for a lot of money. Musa should not be viewed as the Declan Rice replacement. He should be viewed as a midfielder who's coming in to help this team find something different in their attack, to find something different in the midfield. But again, that has nothing to do with playing time, right? Like I I don't know. I I think if Musa goes, he would play. If a team is not successful, then
3: playing time. They weren't successful last year. Well, they won a trophy, technically. Okay, fair
2: enough. Yeah, that's actually fair. (laughs) I I don't know. I I just I have such a hard time thinking that Musa wouldn't play at West Ham. And that they wouldn't like him. And but even setting that aside, like who else are they gonna play? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, it's, I it's think, who else is popping out of the woodwork here?
3: I think that's fair. My assumption would be if they sell rice, they will replace with multiple players at a lower be. level because of the point you made, which is they're never gonna find another Declan Rice. So you spend 20 million, 25, three times because you made 80 or whatever, a hundred, and then you you figure out which of the eight attributes of those players fit you. And I think the problem is. Unless what we saw against Mexico one time at an international level is right. I don't think Musa defensively is the piece to replace Rice. And so now I just think it becomes a, well, if the team's struggling, it's the young guy who's not making us a winning team where I'm David Moyes and panicked that comes out first, or you're just talking about a volatile situation. You're talking about Valencia again. And I get that Valencia is in a different way because of the debt and all that stuff, but also like not that dissimilar to West Ham at times. Over the last few years. And you look at a club in West Ham who spent a record fee on Smash and Holler and then got rid of him like a year and a half later for a guy in Mikel Antonio who's been amazing, but was not a known piece. Like when Holler came in, it would have been like, who's he not gonna beat out? Mikel Antonio. So I just think there's more danger in the move. I think you're right, Joe. And like he would come in and the assumption would be he would play a lot. And if he played at the level and the team played well, he would not lose minutes. I worry that those last two things would happen. And that's where Brighton they have a a system to development. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. if Leverkusen, it, I think Bundesliga is a decent spot for him.
2: If if we can agree that minutes is the most important thing that Eunice Musa should be seeking as a twenty-year-old young central midfielder who's who's trying to develop his game, and maybe we don't agree on that. And I think there should be other factors as well. Stability of a club is a big part. And you, you can't argue that West Ham has more stability than Brighton. Like, there, I, I, there's no way that you can argue that, right? And I'm not trying to argue that. But if we're talking about Yunus Musa being able to go somewhere and play at a higher level and, and continue to get regular minutes, uh, he he's set up to get that at West Ham. He's not set up to get that at, at Brighton, certainly. And, and I don't know enough about Leverkusen at the moment to say anything about them for sure. I don't know. I'm not saying those are bad moves. And I don't really yeah. feel this passionately about it either. I'm just confused that you guys saying he wouldn't play at West Ham because I, I don't I think he
1: would, right? I didn't say he wouldn't play at West Ham. My concern is if things go poorly for West Ham, if they don't have the ability to spend some time getting him up to speed, then I think you're sort of at a worse position from the jump. So, like, I also think, Joe, like, you you have to agree that Brighton develop players better than West Ham. Yeah, if you sure. Look at West Ham's squad uh johnson played 20 appearances last year he's 23 years old declan rice is 24 he made over 20 appearances uh outside of that it's it's pretty scarce uh nikola vlasic i guess uh 25 years old made 19 appearances everyone else on that team is 26 years of age or older a lot of them 30 years of age or older so it's a very veteran heavy team is i think where i'm coming from in my answer to this question you might Definitely get minutes. You're right that I wasn't looking at it specifically for minutes, which is what the question asked. So I think that is a good point. I think the likelihood is that he would get more minutes at West Ham. Uh, just would he actually, in the long run, is the the other concern? I sure. Guess.
2: Yep. I mean, Declan Rice played 3,000 minutes at 19 and played three thousand twenty eight hundred 2,800 minutes or more every year after that. Like he would be he would be the young prize at West Ham. Probably that might not work. Like I totally agree. West Ham could crash and burn, and Musa could be tossed into turmoil, and that might not work out. West Ham have shown that they're willing to do that with young players if they believe in them. And I like Yunus Musa a lot. I know we all like Yunus Musa a lot. He could go and be the prize at West Ham. It's not guaranteed, but he totally could. Or he could go and and maybe be like one of the prizes, and that could totally work out for him at Brighton as well. I'm not opposed to any of these moves. I guess I'm just a little bit higher on what a move to West Ham could look like. That said, I will be complaining when I watch him for 90 minutes defend in a 4-4-2 mid block, and I get really bored, so. And the that, ball that just noted. bypasses him at every
3: moment. Yeah, exactly. exactly. To the front line.
1: Yep. Final question comes from Johnny531, which I'm going to assume is uh, from Short Circuit. So that would be the 35th iteration of Johnny5 the Robot. Joe, all of this going way over your My head, term. I'm guessing. Correct. Maybe David Goss Correct. as well. No. Literally don't what? understand a word you just said, except the word ah, robot. That's fine. That's fine. It's <laughs> another great example of, of Hollywood, including Brownface as well, into a movie about uh sentient talking robots. Uh, but Johnny531. Uh, Joe, for the US women's national team at the World Cup, if Rose Lavelle and Lindsay Horan both can't play 90 minutes, both haven't played much soccer lately. Do you start both or save one or the other for later uh, in-game changes or later games in the tournament?
2: Yeah, so I think I said on the World Cup reaction show last week that I probably wouldn't start these two players anyway if it's up to me. I would start Lavelle if she's healthy and ready to go. That's not a guarantee right now, despite Andonofsky saying last week that they're not worried about Rose Lavelle. Essentially, they they think she's going to play in the send-off game on July 9th against Wales in California and then she's going to be fine to, to get regular minutes after that. We'll see if that actually pans out. I would play Lavelle if she's ready to go. And I probably wouldn't start Haran based off of her or some of her recent national team performances. But I think Vlatka will start both. I, if both are ready to go and 90 minutes fit, I mean, Haran played on May 21st. That was her last league game with Lyon. She's going to be in the same spot that a lot of the European players are in terms of, you know, th- their season's over, they're training, they're trying to stay fit, they're getting ready. She'll, she'll kind of be in the same boat as a lot of those other players, I don't think US soccer is particularly worried about these two players not being able to play together. And they are very clearly Vlacco's first choice midfield group. I think we would see them start together, at least at the beginning of the tournament, in every game that Vlacco thinks is a big game.
1: Goss, any thoughts on this one? Um Other than that Johnny Five is a great robot. I know sure. you wanted to get that one so, in So Joey,
3: yeah. if you weren't starting them, it, would you play two would you play a double pivot?
2: Uh, I mean, that's kind of what they've been doing, right? With Lindsey Horan deeper next to Andy but Sullivan and next to Julius. But i saying two
3: true defensive midfielders in Sullivan no, and Ertz. Is not, that No,
2: zero percent. <laughs> I would start okay. Ertz, and I would start Lavelle, and then I would either start Sanchez or DeMello, which is a risk. Yeah. But I don't think Lindsey Horan has been a super high-level national team performer in, in, in recent games, and maybe that extends a little bit further. She's still incredibly good at soccer. like She is still an excellent player, but the U.S. have a lot of excellent players who I think could give them a little bit more and if you've got Julie Arts who can do some of the defensive work in behind at, at an elite level, and that is still somewhat of a question mark, I think you can afford to try and be a little bit, you know, more assertive in how you position yourselves and, and what personnel you choose.
3: Yeah. So I would, from their attributes, I would take, I would bring Lavelle off the bench because I think she is a game changer as teams get tired and ability to just break lines with her dribbling as well as her goal scoring. Um, I think both of them can be assets off the bench. Obviously, Haran making the late runs and being a set-piece presence and all of that. If I wasn't going to start them, though, I would start Sullivan and Ertz and just unlock the front three as well as probably Crystal Dunn coming from the back line to just say, you have full freedom to attack because we have cover for you. I don't think any of the other options in midfield change the game for you. So if you're bringing in DeMello or Sanchez and saying, well, they can cover more ground, they can play both ways, but if they're not difference makers, I'd rather just have the cover for the strength of this team, which is the front. And the front three, I think, are going to eat against most teams. But what's, I think, exciting about this is you have the Netherlands in your group. So like we're going to see really quickly if Haran and Lavelle are at the level or what Vlako can find in big moments because you're playing a rematch of the final in the group stage, which is perfect because let's be real. You're going to beat Vietnam. You're going to beat Portugal. And I actually think that worked out really well for the U S and having that little bit of a test early on to say like, okay, this is where everyone's at, at this world cup level. We kind of have our first idea of into the knockouts, who
1: starters and who's capable in those spots. All right, gentlemen. Well, we've answered uh several lister questions you all have done a great job we've also uh pinged all over the place with lots of random references and lots of sub questions and subtopics and at one point joe and goss seem like they might uh come through the monitor and fight each other which is the sign that it's been over which time an electric and excellent <laughs> episode uh, i think J- joe's fury about uh uh hating uh brighton and loving west uh, ham and that's everything correct. they stand for come on yeah, you yeah, lions
3: yeah, yeah, I <laughs> did not like that. No,
1: I did not like that. Guess what? Uh, I also, Joe didn't
3: like
2: it.
1: <laughs> Joe, I I liked your performance on today's episode. Thank you so much, my friend. Oh, thank you, Taylor. This was fun. Uh, David Goss, are you more or less frustrated with Aiden Morris after getting to talk out some other things, or is the uh, is the lingering disappointment still
3: there? I I think he's doing great. I think we still believe in him. It just needs to play simple, work hard, move the ball a little faster. Yeah.
1: There we go. (laughs) Uh, Well, David Goss, thank you uh, as well, my friend. Thank you. All right, listeners, thanks so much. We'll be back with a full Lister Questions episode uh, tomorrow. I think that will be uh, myself, Joe, Graham, and Ryan. Until then, we'll talk to you soon.